Welcome to the Make Light Show, the podcast that's all about curating meaning and joy in a light-filled life. I'm Karen Walrand, photographer, storyteller, and author of The Beauty of Different, Observations of a Confident Misfit, and Make Light, stories of bright sparks, slow burns, and thriving out loud. Join me as I speak with light seekers and light makers from around the world, learning all about how they live with intention and a sense of adventure. It's proof that positivity, creativity, and kindness make the world go round. Joining me today is Mira Jacob, one of my absolute favorite writers and creatives. She is the author of The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, one of my favorite novels that I've read in recent memory. And her next book, coming summer 2018, is a graphic novel, snippets of which can be seen at her Instagram account, Good Talk, Thanks. Her writing is funny, sharp, and incisive, and she consistently puts out work that will make you think. So join us today as we talk about creativity, how she views what she calls the topography of her life, and you should too, and why she's forced to choose Michael Jackson over Queen. Mira, my sweet friend. I am Hello. so excited to have you here. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. I, I, am, I have been a fan of your well let's let me figure this out i was trying to think of when we met i think it was when we were both working for Babel. is that right is that when we first met definitely yes yeah which was several years ago now so we're we're old timers several and, blessed years ago <laughs> lifetimes ago it would even feel like it would feel like lifetimes ago <laughs> and so i think you were you were my editor and um but currently you are a novelist an artist a journalist and this is something i didn't realize you teach fiction writing at nyu is that right Yes, I do. And I'm starting teaching fiction writing at the new school also next semester. So yes, so so you're also you're also molding young minds. Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) No, yes, of course. Which is awesome. So thank you so much for being here. And the first thing that I want to talk about is my favorite of your works, of which there are many, because I, I love everything you write. I, when you had a blog, I read everything. When you went to Spain and had a blog, I, wear, I read everything. And of course, I read A Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, which is probably one of my favorite books I've ever read. If you have not read this book, everybody, this is like a great summertime read, I feel like. Like it's a really lovely, meaty novel that you can get into and I always I always imagined in my head it was vaguely autobiographical so I'd love for you to tell us more about the book and how you came up with it and if I'm right yes okay <laughs> so not autobiographical in certain ways but there is one very strong uh, thread of autobiography so I will tell you that the um the main character so just to to give a little background for people that have not read this book um this is a book about a photojournalist who gets a call from her very unreliable mother whether or not um, her mother kamala is operating on reality is really up for debate the entire book right um but she gets a call that in which her mother says your father is seeing people that don't exist on the porch. He's talking to them. You need to come home and figure out what's happening. Right. So she goes home to figure it out. And when I started this book, um, I started it in t- 2001. I was concurrently ghostwriting Kenneth Cole's book. Oh. So I was sort of <laughs> pretending to be Kenneth Cole by day. That's awesome. Um, the shoe guy, right? It, yes, it was super weird. That's awesome. Um, he's he does a lot of great social work, but let me tell you, there's nothing to give you an identity crisis like being a brown woman pretending to be a white man, a wealthy white man, a wealthy designing white man. Like, what's happening with my world? That's awesome. Um, 
So in order to hold on to my own reality, I created a completely fictional world. Completely makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. But this, uh, the main character in it is um, Amina, who is, I think of her as one of those people who has had um, a childhood that got kind of fractured hmm. in a very specific way early on so that it really... Um, it sort of stunted her in certain ways and it also gave her certain kinds of superpowers mm. and it really it's made her into a very specific kind of person and that character um, is actually not me which people are, are really disappointed to find out because I think she's somewhat um, likable and I'm, I think I'm much less likable. Um, <laughs> not true. <laughs> totally not true. But she has a she has a similar background, like right, like she's she's of yes. Indian descent, and she lives in yep. New Mexico, and that is exactly how you live. Exactly. Right? You, right. Yes. And I and I said it in that place for a very specific reason, because unlike the rest of, uh, not the rest of, but certainly other pockets of America where there was a really strong Indian American community. Um, there were almost no Indian Americans in New Mexico in the 60s and 70s. And then in the 80s, more came and in the 90s, a lot more came. Hmm. But when I was growing up, my family was the third Indian family to move into the state. In the state? So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That you even know that is amazing. Um, and that's and my mother is always careful to say, but we didn't know about the people in Los Alamos. <laughs> <laughs> so like, she's right. We have no idea what was happening in Los Alamos for many, many years. So there could have been other Indians that nobody knew about there. Wow. Um, but as far as we know, and as far as um, other, you know, we, 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 we know the other Indians. We know of, you know, oh, this, this family came to Santa Fe in this year. Um, but I grew up with a really limited um, community. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to get that into a book because I don't think, I don't think many people write about that because I don't think many people are in that situation. So right. I gave her that kind of specific background. But um, so that, so the location completely autobiographical. I grew up in Corrales, New Mexico. I grew up without many other Indians around me. I grew up with the kind of family system that she has, which is a bunch of people who are not related to her that she calls uncle, aunt, and right. cousin. Right. They have zero blood relation. And because this is what we did, we grafted on to other humans that kind yep. of came from the same part of the world. And they were familiar enough to form what is basically, you know, a, a kind of made blood bond. Right, right. Um, and I'm closer to them than I am to my blood-related family, for the most part, because I saw them for every holiday and every celebration. Right. You so, know, it's so funny you say that, yeah. because, um, because as you know, I'm from the Caribbean, and I'm from specifically Trinidad, which has a very huge East Indian um, population. We, right. We tend to be really mixed, right? But there are more East Indians than Africans, who, it, you know, population-wise, and that's really kind of only by looking because everybody mixed up, right? Yeah. Um, but we have a very strong South Asian and Indian culture in Trinidad and very similar to you. I have many, many aunties and uncles that I grew up with that really have no blood relation whatsoever. Um, and I'm wondering now, listening to you, whether that was something, that was a, a, a tradition that was brought over from India or, you know, where, where it came from, but exactly the same. It sounds very familiar. I feel like it's a tradition that was kind of born of necessity, probably, right? I mean, there's yeah. always the uncles and aunties that you're related to, but there's also the, also the real need 
of uncles and aunties. Yes. I mean, my 16 year old self is screaming in some corner right now being like, I don't need any more uncles and aunties, but <laughs> God knows they're meddling. Um, but that, that idea of having that kind of safety net and having people beyond your parents who are yeah. watching out for you, yeah. who will simply show up for you because you mean something to them yeah. in a very specific way. Anyway, all these things I explored in the book. The part that is autobiographical, which was unfortunate and strange, but interesting, is I started this book believing that I would give the father a kind of accelerated Alzheimer's. I okay. wanted to explore what happens to a man when he disappears right in front of his family mm. while he's still in his body. And, um, and I was writing that book for three years. And then in real life, my father developed, um, he got cancer Wow! and he started, he was a heart surgeon. He started dying and I didn't know it because no one knows when the person that you love and they have cancer, no one knows really when that they're dying until, until they're dead. And then you finally admit to yourself that that thing that you were going through was them dying. Mm. Um, but I started going through this process of that with him and I, I just stopped writing completely. Wow. Yeah. For three years, I just stopped. Um, And I put the book away because I had given this father what I thought was going to be a kind of interesting exploration, um, you know, for me to let go of a father in fiction. And then in real life, I was having to do that a little bit more every day. And it was just horrific. Yeah, Yeah. it was painful. Also, because fiction, writing fiction requires um, a certain amount of emotional um, possibility, meaning you have to write a scene and imagine that many different things could happen in it with sort of equal compassion for all of those worlds. And the truth is, is when somebody in your life is dying, there's only one thing you have room for, which mm. is hope. Yeah. And that shuts down everything else. I didn't have any other things to think about. I only was just carrying the hope all those years. And I didn't have the possibilities for any other kind of uncertainty in my life. So um, what made you return to the book? Yeah, well, he died. And that would even make it harder, I would think. It, w- it was so weird, Karen. Um, honestly, what happened is he died. He didn't die the way I wanted him to. He didn't die the way he wanted him to. Mm. Um, it was brutal. It was painful. It was, uh, it was ugly, and it was, it was awful, yeah. honestly. And, and there were many, many beautiful parts about it because he was a beautiful person but it was a disaster it was exactly what he had never wanted he was a doctor and he said please just let me know please let it come for me quickly please Mm. let me never feel the pain and every single step of the way it was excruciating he knew what happened and he understood before we did how bad it was going to get and just knowing that he lived those three years while trying to keep us from the worst of it was just once it happened i thought oh god what Mm. were you going alone were you with all of this which is to say I needed him badly after mm. he died and I went back to the book and I started writing this other father who I thought was so funny and interesting in the moment that I had been writing him before and he was not my father and he was this great character and and then it just, he just started morphing um, mm. into my father. Like first it was his hands. <laughs> right. Suddenly my dad's hands showed up. They were very specific hands. They were very big. Um, which I always thought was crazy because he was a surgeon and he had these huge, you know, claws. <laughs> right. And um, and then it was his eyes, and then his body came on the page, and then his and then his mannerisms started coming on. And my husband asked me, "How is the book going?" And I said, "Yeah, I've ruined it." 
And, <laughs> <laughs> oh my and gosh. Said, Why? And I said, I keep writing my dad, and I know mm. that's the wrong thing to do. And I know this because I know that nothing will kill fiction faster than the truth of your life. But is I that miss true? him. Yeah. It's... I mean, what I mean by that is when you write a fictional character and you try to put, let's say, your mother in right. it. You feel so much, even if you can't stand your mother, you feel so much allegiance to the truth that, again, you can't hold the possibilities of the character in your head. Mm, I see what you're saying. Okay. It doesn't breathe in the same way. And I was like, I know I'm killing the book. I know I'm killing it slowly, but I miss him. And I need to, to see him every day. And so I spent, um, I spent six more years wow. writing the book n- with this new father in it, who was, in fact, my father. And that's the part that's autobiographical is that that is that man, those things didn't happen to my dad. It's such a strange way to explain this. That is not his life. He didn't abandon his family. You know, like all of these things that kind of he does in the book. Right. Those actions were not actions my father took. But the way he'll walk out of the room in the middle of a fight, the way he will get close to the truth and then just shut everything down around him. Uh, the way that he will love in a, in a way that feels completely uncompromising and the way that you feel held in a way that, that I certainly will probably never feel held in the world again. Those were my dad. And, um, and I put that in there and I, and it felt really good to do it. I, well, and it read really well. I mean, the, the, it's, it's won awards. It's, it's an amazing story. It really is. Um, so she might say Thank she you. ruined the book, but she didn't ruin the book. <laughs> she made the book better. <laughs> and definitely, please definitely go out and read this because it is such an amazing story. It's an amazing work. And I remember we have a we have a mutual friend, Alice um, Bradley, yeah, who I think um, had read your book before it was published. Is that right? Yes. Alice and I were sharing work. Alice is fantastic. Um, Another beautiful writer, writer. And she writes incredible uh, fiction as well. And so we were sharing work um and she's a really good eye um she's got a great kind of sensibility so anyway yeah i was showing her uh the book as as i was writing it um and it was really it was helpful because other you know there were a few people that i was showing it to but mainly it was just me living alone in my head with it sure um and it was great to have someone else to kind of say like oh this feels real well i remember (laughs) talking with her and she you know and she was like she said mira's just finished her book and i said really and she like almost whispered she goes it is amazing like she she literally went down to a whisper and so i was i will tell you that i had my expectations pretty high and they were still exceeded it was i i I can't say how much i just love this book it really it was amazing so did you always know you were going to be a writer i mean when you were a kid growing up in new mexico you were like that's where i'm going to be yeah no i mean it was really it's funny i've been writing about that lately um yeah i mean i always knew i wanted to be a writer but i always had um my parents that were like don't be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, you know, um, my parents really thought it was a great hobby um, that I could do on the side of, you know, while I was an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. Sure. Um, they had their, their kind of hierarchy of the things that were good, good jobs to have um, and the things, and they had no, they had no place for what it would look like for me to be a writer. And I, as a result, also had no imagination for what that could be. Um, so really, actually, one of the interesting things, I don't know if you know this, but the only reason that book ever got done was because I was suddenly um, laid off from okay, I didn't Babel. know that. Yeah. Um, so I had never given myself 
uh, a real opportunity to write. I had this wonderful agent who said, this, this book is amazing, please get it done. Um, and I had my friends who were writers that would say, this is really good, please get it done. But I had never um, given myself permission to go for it with the writing, really just get it done. And what happened was when I was um, laid off um, unexpectedly, um, I met my husband uh, really under the Brooklyn Bridge, which is a smart place to meet at that point, because on top of it could have been dangerous. <laughs> and, um, and I was just, I was just really not used to, um, as, as anyone who has ever been laid off before can tell you, the humiliation was extraordinary. Sure. And, um, and he said, you know, you've been working on this book for 10 years. Why don't you just take the next three months and finish it? Um, and I thought that's insane. I love your um, husband. I can't. I, it was really. It was a really interesting. Honestly, it was a. It was a really interesting time because I had. I had been working on the book for ten years. I had been writing it from eleven to one in the morning. Wow. And um. And I'd gotten three fourths of the way through, and I kept telling him, I just feel like if I could finish the book, it would. It would change my life just to know that I could get it done. And I did. I finished mm. it. Um. But that never would have happened had I not gotten laid off out of the blue. So in a way it was this, it was this strange um, fortuitousness because we are not people that are made of money. So I couldn't languish in that place indefinitely. Right. I actually, <laughs> I got the book done within a month cause I was so terrified. Um, isn't that crazy? I've been working on it for 10 years and then I finished wow. it in a month. Yeah. Um, and well, I terror to... can be a great motivator. So. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's my <laughs> primary motivator to be honest. That's just, I'm basically, I basically run by terror and mercies. Um, and so, yeah, I got it done really, really quickly. Um, and then, yeah, and it did change my life. Well, and, and you're working on another book, which is mind blowing in so many ways, probably the, primary way is that it's nothing like your first book like it's it's a graphic novel which yeah. when you first started sharing this i was like whoa she she's an artist too like what when did that happen so and and i love it's hysterical it's funny it's really smart you share it right on instagram at good good talk thanks you share bits of it um tell yeah. me where that idea came from and um and how that's going yeah okay so it's very funny. Whenever someone says you're an artist, I, I want to giggle and say, no, I just draw things. Um, <laughs> I don't actually know what the distinction is in my head, except one of those things sort of comes with flowing robes and long wine lunches. And the other is me drawing things at a computer. Um, <laughs> All right. We're going to get you to admit to yourself you're an artist because you're totally someone, an artist. <laughs> a friend of mine, a friend of mine who is an artist was like, you, you, you will have to get over this. And yes, I just was like, yeah, will. let's just give me seven more glasses of wine and I'll start saying I'm an artist. <laughs> um, I've always drawn. I've always drawn as an outlet. I drew all through Sleepwalker's Guide. Whenever I can't get a scene to work out, I'll choose an object from that scene and I'll draw it so that I can um, think. Uh, mm. it's, like a, it's a little bit of a, re a relaxation tool for me. Um, and what happened with this book, so two things. One thing which I want to tell you about because I, I, I find so much freedom in this thought. There are a few things that in my creative life that have made like a huge impression on me. And one was a friend of mine after the book came out, I was touring and a lot of people felt really passionately about the book, which is an incredible feeling and also mm. a terrifying feeling mm. because one of the things that kept coming up was 
is there a sequel? What is the sequel? I want the sequel oh. to be this. Tell me more about the sequel. <laughs> right. And, and the, the assumption that these characters would live on forever. And I knew for sure, or anyway, I, who knows anything for sure. But at this point, there is no sequel. And how could there ever be? And I feel mm. like, no, that book ended. And that really needed to end. And it ended. And it ended exactly where it needed to. Um, and I got a little nervous because I thought, oh, God, what if my next book, people people want to see those characters. I don't want to write those characters again. I, I, that book took me 10 years and I was in a different place and I sure. feel differently about the world. And if my friend who's um, an architect said to me, so what, what are you thinking for the next book? And I said, I don't know, because all anyone wants is a sequel. And, you know, I just sort of burst out with all this information. Right. And he looked at me and he's like, you know what I like to do when I'm when I'm thinking of a new project is I kind of like to think of it like a topographic map. And then I tell myself, where have you never been before? I ask oh, myself. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. <laughs> like you should I, see, I'm like gobsmacked. I'm like that. What an amazing way to look at life. What an amazing way to look at your work. Yeah. Because I also, I thought, wait, what you think where, because I would, I, I am the kind of cagey person that would be like, where was the last road? What was the last <laughs> turn I took on it? Is there a cul-de-sac I can revisit? Like, you know what I mean? Just like, what can I get? Whatever, you know, what can I do that's, that's not too new that I've, you know, just the, apparently there's, apparently there's a, there's an old lady in me that, that comes out and, and, and talks to me through my artistic process. But it was so cool because he said that and instantly, um, I saw a, a kind of topographic map, of course, of New Mexico because mm -hmm. I'm so bound to that place in Seoul. And I and I instantly was like, "Oh my God, where's the? Where have you never been? Where have you never been?" And um, and I and I knew that where I had never been, but where I had always been, was in this drawing, in yeah. this world of where I draw things and I write them, and I draw and I write. Um, and then, so I, I, uh, and I had talked to my agent who's wonderful, Michelle Tesler. And I said, you know, these drawings I've been doing. And she said, yeah, you should draw a book. And it was so funny. <laughs> she said it so quickly. And she said, you know, you always do. You draw, you draw, you send me your drawings all year long. Like you should draw a book. And I, and I was sort of like, that was, you know, you really are on board. She said, no, I mean, you should draw a book. She was great. She was, wow. she was a thousand percent behind it. Um, and and the other thing that happened, um, Karen, as you know, is this was in the moment. So this was 2014. Mm -hmm. My book had come out. I was a little bit shell-shocked um, at being a kind of a public person after not actually being one in that specific way. Mm. And my son was starting. I am in a mixed-race family. I am Indian-American. My husband is Jewish-American. My son looks more like me. Mm -hmm. And he was starting to figure out his skin color mm. and starting to figure out what our skin color meant in terms of our lives, which is a crazy thing for a six-year-old to be grappling with. Um, and he was figuring it out in the same moment that he had a Michael Jackson obsession that was enormous. <laughs> which was um, amazing. And everything was going down in Ferguson. Yep. All of these things were conflating, and he and I were having the craziest conversations and they were really painful. And I did a piece about this um, that was published on BuzzFeed called 37 Difficult Questions from My Mixed Race Son. What, that, even more than Sleepwalker's Guide, that I just literally revisited it the other day. It is the my favorite thing I've ever read on the internet. It's, I, th I think I, I tagged you on it on Facebook recently, too. Like, you did. That I, you did. It came up as a memory. And I'm like, yes, this is still my favorite thing I have ever read on the internet. It is so 
heartbreaking and intelligent and smart and incisive and and as a black woman and a black immigrant woman so much of what i grappled with myself growing up i saw myself in it it's it's amazing it's amazing thank you you know what was so funny about that whole thing okay so so here's the thing is that i was trying for like three days to write a the bad think piece right i was trying to write about his questions because the truth is he was asking me these ridiculously hilarious questions right um some of them were just insane some of them were hilarious and then and they were hilarious because it was as if an alien had come down to earth and was trying to understand how the brown and the white work. And right, like I, he even said, like, am I going to get whiter, I think, when I get older? Like yeah, no, Jackson, right. So my, right? Like, <laughs> this is, this is, right, because he asked about Michael Jackson. So one of the things that happened is when his obsession with Michael Jackson, it was huge. We got him albums instead of um, letting him have some sort of iPod because I didn't want him skipping around. I just right. wanted to hear the songs. So we got him the albums. That's awesome and um and then he had the albums in his room and lo and behold if you leave a six-year-old who's grappling with his color alone in a room with a bunch of michael jackson albums (laughs) crazy things start to happen right (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) so yeah so he comes out he comes out one day and he's like mommy is michael jackson brown or is he white and i was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) question of the ages kid yeah exactly i was like you know the crazy thing about uh, the crazy thing is he sort of started brown and he turned white and he goes he turned white and i said yeah and he said are you going to turn white no am i going to turn white no daddy daddy's already white was he always like (laughs) it just he lost his mind and I was like, wow, that oh my so God, I awesome. just, I just messed up the entire parenting thing. It's over. I, I loved it. I love Here it goes. so much. And I, and, and you continue to share bits of this on, like I said, on Instagram, on Good Talk Thanks. And um, the thing that I love about it, other than the fact your drawings are great, other than the fact that you use photography as part of it, like your backgrounds and as a photographer, I love that, um, is that you don't pull punches. Like you, you say it, right? Like, like you say what's up. You say what's up when it comes to race, when it comes to politics, when it comes to um, any sort of societal ill. Uh, sometimes it's through the voice of your young son. Um, how are you so brave? How do you, how do you, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> I mean, like, that, like a lot of people, thing. but it's, it's very, very true. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of creative people, if they're just starting out, and I'm going to call you just starting out in this, even though you've been doing yeah, it no, a good. lot. I like right? it. I like, like it. you're starting yeah. out as far as publicizing it. Sure. Would be afraid of alienating potential audiences or afraid of it alienating by taking such a stand, right? Whether or not you agree that, that this is the stand I want to take. I will say certainly as a writer and a photographer, um, you know, of late, I am far less likely to care. Um what people think about me taking a stand part of it has to do with the life we're in part of it has to do with me getting older but um but you seem really pretty fearless about it like you're like i am going to say this and it's you know i don't even want to call it satire because it's not 
like it's oh if you're in on the joke you'll get it like you just say it and it it can be funny but sometimes it's not sometimes it's heartbreaking how did you find that voice well so that's you know what so i told you i tried to write a think piece and the the problem with think pieces and the problem with a think piece in america at this moment is that um everybody wants to any sentence you construct around how you feel is dismissible instantly and Mm. is um, dismissible in a very specific way. Mm. And people do not want to interact with what it was like to be you in that moment. And they want to make sure that whatever you are at the bottom of it, if they don't agree with you, there's some level of you just being pathetic or a baby (laughs) or too angry or, you know, whatever it is, or naive. Immigrant, too brown, too female. All these things. (laughs) Right. And listen, you know, I am, I have, I have been in this America for many decades decades as a brown woman, I am very familiar with all the different kinds of dismissal outright and subtle that <laughs> right. can come at you. And the, and the easiest thing, the easiest, I say, the, the way that I have been doing this has allowed me just to, I'm just writing down the the stuff he's saying, the stuff people are saying around me. Right. I am right. Because you're talking like you're the bodega owner, I think, was one that yeah. you know, recently your mom appears in it quite right. a bit. So, yeah. Yeah. Just I'm just writing down because you can have whatever feeling you want about that mm. conversation. I'm not telling you how to feel about our conversation. You can look at our conversation and say, oh, my God, you ridiculous woman. Go live somewhere on a corner of the earth by yourself. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. But you have to hear that conversation. I love it. I love it. I, it's I can't wait for the book. I'm, <laughs> do, we, do we know when the book is supposed to be published? The book is I, coming out next summer. Um, yes. The book is coming out next summer with Dial Press. Um, Random so that's House. summer 2018. Summer 2018. I'm not Yay. sure which month yet because um, this is the first time I've ever drawn a book. So there's been an enormous learning curve. Mm. I usually only drew on paper before. I had to teach myself how to draw on a computer. I had to teach myself several different softwares and languages and all these ridiculous things. Um, but I'm doing it so that I can get this very simple thing down, which is y'all can have whatever you want to believe is your political stance and and your strong held beliefs about anything. That is fine. And it can even disagree with any part of me. This is my world. So tell me, you you just said something that 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 struck something with me. You said that you taught yourself all these different languages and programs and that kind of thing. Um, Was that terrifying or did you like, was it something that is like, well, I've just got to do this, so I'm going to dive in and do it? Like how? Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, no, I mean, if I, if I would have looked at it from the outset and been like, you're going to have to teach yourself this and this and this and this, probably would have lost my mind because, um, because, you know, if you look at anything, if you look at a mountain and think you're going to have to learn it stone by stone, you're going to lose your mind. Right. But that said, it has been exhilarating. Yeah. Because the truth is, you can do it. Hmm. I mean, that's this thing I believe, and I have believed since the days when I was writing Sleepwalkers. You, you have the power to do this. You have the power to learn anything. There is no cap on when you can learn something new and figure out how to put it into the world. The world wants to tell you that you need to be 20 and sexy <laughs> and, you know, whatever, the, the world wants to tell you that there's an expiration date on your yep. creativity or when your voice is important or relevant. And that's a lie. It's a, it's a, it's a ridiculous lie. And, and I, I just don't feel that it applies. It doesn't apply to certainly this world at this moment. And it, I am a brown woman in my mid 
40s, if I waited for permission <laughs> for when the world was ready for me, I would still be in the icebox. <laughs> if I'm going to do anything, it has to be of my own volition and immediately and with all cylinders blaring. That's the only way to do it. So anyway, just to say, like, it's been exhilarating. It's been crazy. You know, half the time I'm like, oh, my God, did I just what is this? Oh, my God. How many different things do you have to figure out just to get this one thing together? In another way, it's allowed me this medium sure. that I never would have seen coming, this very easy way to say, this is my world. This is my world. This is my world. This is your world, too. This is our world. This is my, where your world and my world intersect right here. See this conversation? Mm -hmm. This is a, how do you hear it? I hear it like this. And that has been really helpful to me um, to be able to live in that space has been really it's been yeah a little bit terrifying sometimes but mostly I think of it as the immigrant superpower <laughs> you want to be, honestly I really do so like the cool thing about my parents like right. deeply cool is that they were always trying to figure out America. You know, they came here in their 20s. Mm -hmm. They had no backup. They had no net behind them. They were coming at a time when you could call your family maybe once a week. Right. And if you lost your money, that's just the deal. Like, it, the stakes were high. Yep. And I, and I mean that as the, I want to say, I want to be clear, too. They came at a time when the American government was wooing Indian Americans to hmm. come here when they relaxed laws and made it easy for my family to come here in ways that they did not for many other immigrant communities. And it was still a struggle. Wow. So all that taken, all that, you know, taken into account, the one thing they never stopped doing was trying to figure out what the hell was going on in America. <laughs> and they did it with this sort of enthusiasm and, um, and kind of, you know, a combination of, of bewilderment, but also excitement and also a kind of we're going to do this. We're going to keep figuring it out. We are never going to be the authority. We're always going to keep being curious. And, and, and that I is found, the immigrant way as an immigrant yeah. myself and the child yeah. of immigrants. That is absolutely the immigrant way. And curiosity, yeah. I think, is the antidote to so many of the, the pains that we're going through right now, like real curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity about not just, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about my life, but like, what is yours? What is your life? Right. Right. Because I, because right now the thing that hor that is horrifying me the most is that a, is that a band of very wealthy, incurious men hmm. have somehow controlled the narrative to the point where those of us that have a lot in common, a lot in common, certainly more in common than we have with any of those men <laughs> can no longer find each other. Right. Oh, wow. Right. But that curiosity, if you can. So how do you that find that each other? How do, how do you find it? I, you, know, I, you know, I was talking um, with another mutual friend of ours, Asha, and she thinks she tells me all the time that um, art will art will save the world. Do, do you believe that? Oh, I love Asha. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it will save the world. It's a re it's a really rough time to to be putting bets on what will save the world. It's hard in <laughs> yep. the way that you're saying it's hard. before you know when we were talking when you're saying it was hard for me. You were saying it's hard for me to get excited about any new break in what's happening because I just don't. Yep. I just don't believe it's going to be the cure. It's hard for me to get excited about any one thing hmm. um, because I'm not sure that any one thing is going to save us. But I do think that everything together hmm. is going is, is the best shot we have 
Yeah. And we're, we are in the moment of an enormous reckoning. Yep. And I have no idea which way it's going to turn out. Well, I think your art is a really wonderful way to try. I mean, because like I said, you see yourself in it. And, and I think it's amazing. I, so um, I'm thrilled. I hope you keep doing amazing. I hope you keep looking at your topographical map and see new places to go because I totally love it. So, all right. We're going to play um, a bullet round. A really okay. fun little bullet round. You ready? Okay. So yes. I'm just going to say two things and you have to tell me which one you prefer. No explanation. Okay. Just tell me. All right. Okay. Ready? Yep. Coffee or tea? Tea. Okay. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Salty or sweet? <laughs> sweet. Okay. Queen or Michael Jackson? Come on. I, I, well, I mean, your son was really, really into both for a while there, so. I know. I'm like, you're, you're asking me to choose between old Z and new Z. I like all Zs. I like all Zs involved. Um, okay, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go with Michael Jackson, just because if, if Z is listening to this and I don't say Michael Jackson, I might be disowned. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry, that was an explanation. No, that's one. fine. No, I will. I will take that. You know, and I just I want to tell you also one of my favorite things also on the Internet. The only thing that might compete with um, the conversation you had with your son was a video you did when he was very young of uh, the two of you singing Hey Jude. Um, <laughs> do you remember that video? He was like two. Of course. He was, yeah, he was one and a half. Oh, Oh my gosh, it was the best. Hilarious. He's been devoted to rock and roll for a while. Man. For a long time. All right. So, um, I'm, I'm, okay, this one's a really tough one. And I will allow an mm -hmm. explanation with this one. Mm -hmm. um, or for you to completely, like, say both. New York or New Mexico? <gasps> I know. Savage. I know. All right. Honestly. Yep. My my identity is a New Mexican. I am a New Mexican more than I am anything okay. in this world. I am a New Mexican, but New York <laughs> is the only place I want to be. This oh, place, I love that. This place is where all of the conversations are happening. I go to New Mexico for the land and because it is my mother. Right. But I come to New York to figure out who I am and who I'm going to be. I love that. I'm glad I let you explain that one. I love that. All right. Quick ones. Pandora or Spotify? Neither. Really? Good for you. Me either. <laughs> uh, and Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. Inst me too. Okay. And finally, um, because I ask everybody this, what does it mean to thrive? Mm. What does it mean to thrive? Mm. That's a great question. Okay. I'm only going to be able to answer it for this particular window. So future mirrors and past mirrors, take a seat. Okay. What it means to thrive for me right now is to stand in a place of great uncertainty and allow myself to see everything and allow myself to understand as much of it as I can and find a way forward. I love everything about that. Mira. I knew you were going to be fun. <laughs> this was so much fun for me. Thank you so much for agreeing to be oh, a part of thank this. Thank you for Are you kidding me? I love talking to you. I'll talk to you all day long. Karen. And I can't wait to see more of your art and where, what, where you go next. I'm literally, I'm chomping at the bit. Yay. All right. Well, next <laughs> summer, I'll let you know. Excellent. <laughs> 
I could talk to Mira all day long, so naturally I'm beyond grateful to her for joining me. And as always, I'm so grateful to you for joining me here on The Make Light Show. If you'd like to find out more about today's guest, Mira Jacob, be sure to visit her online at mirajacob.com. I'm Karen Walrand, and I'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to this show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. Thrive on, friends. Thank you.